Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the Fairy Tellers. We are going to be continuing on what's going to turn out to be our Beauty and the Beast saga. A saga of so far indefinite length, because the more research you do, the more episodes you keep adding onto our schedule. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> that have to do with it. I was like, oh, what's a tale that people already know about that I can add a little bit of information to? Oh, Beauty and the Beast will be good. And then I went down. A super long rabbit hole. It is like that, though. And I was the same way when I did the research for Mulan, which is why I'm like kind of thankful that I don't do all, you know, most of the research for most of the episodes because I always end up, I'm a tangent person. Yeah. As you listening at home are probably well aware, I go off on a tangent like I'm doing right now. (laughs) But my tangents have tangents that have tangents and I I just lose track of where I was. So it's like I'll start off. It's like the whole Wikipedia thing. Like you go in a Wikipedia wormhole where like suddenly you've got like 12,000 tabs open. You're like you're just trying to look up what actor played whatever character in some movie. And the next thing you know, you're learning about like worms that live on the bottom of Mariana's trench that don't need like oxygen or whatever to survive. It's like, wait, how did I get here? No one knows. I absolutely love it when people go down those wormholes though, like on Wikipedia, because then usually it's my sister will like come to me and be like, Katrina, did you hear about the German family that disappeared 20 years ago? (laughs) And I'm like, what? Why are you telling me this? Yeah. And my favorite thing to to do, too, is like when I have that moment and with conversations, I like to trace it back, like go back and be like, wait, how did I get here? And follow the line back. Which is exactly what we're doing with uh, the tale of Beauty and the Beast. Yes, I started the, t- the Beauty and the Beast wormhole. The Beauty and Join the Beast us. wormhole. I, you know, started going backwards through the research because we're always trying to kind of explain where these stories came from, like how we got these tale types and how they travel. And we did that with Cinderella. We did that with Sleeping Beauty. And, you know, I was kind of planning on doing the same thing with Beauty and the Beast But then I was like, well, we can't tell the story of Beauty and the Beast without telling the story of Cupid and Psyche. And then what's the point of telling the story of Cupid and Psyche if I'm not telling East of the Sun, West of the Moon? Because they're so obviously connected to each other. And I was like, okay, well, those are two long tales. We'll do those two, but so we'll have to have a second episode for Beauty and the Beast. But no, we're still not doing Beauty and the Beast, guys. (laughs) 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 Because as I was like, okay... Beauty and the Beast, let's talk about animal grooms. And animal grooms is another huge section of stories that can be found from all over different parts of the world. And so I was kind of like, well, if we're going to be talking about animal grooms from around the world, maybe I should find a story from somewhere else that's not Europe. We've kind of when we're talking about like Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, we've more or less stayed in Europe, uh-huh. we've stayed in the EU. And so I was like, well, we should try to find 
you know, some animal grooms outside of that. And then there were just more and more stories that I was finding. In our Cupid and Psyche episode, we talked about that tale because it was one of those earlier ones. It was in the second century AD. I'm pretty positive. And we traced it back that far to show you how uh, something then moving forward could get us to something like uh, East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Yeah. And now I'm actually going to be telling you a story that is a tale from the Thousand and One Nights or Arabian Nights. It has a couple different names. We were going to do a big episode on Thousand and One Nights eventually. And so I don't want to super get into it because there's so much information on it. Yeah. But the reason why I'm going to be telling this tale is because you end up with story elements from this tale showing up in stories like Swan Maidens or even mm-hmm. Hans, my hedgehog. I actually uh-huh. shout out to, there was a person who um, sent me an Instagram message after the East of the sun, West of the moon episode. And said like that story reminds me of Hans my Hedgehog because it's like this woman who has to go like on this long quest to get this husband back but there's actually an element in that story that we can trace back to an early tale from Thousand and One Nights and Thousand and One Nights one, oh, of the, cool. one of the earliest places where some of the stories come from again Thousand One Nights, very complicated, the history of it. But some of the earliest stories are from the ninth century. Wow. And so we'll see how even stories that were being told in the Middle East started to creep into like stories that we know from Europe. So anyway, the history of the Thousand and One Nights It has a wild and crazy history. The stories that we know best from it, like Aladdin and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, Mm -hmm. those are actually stories that are now believed to be European add-ons. Oh, wow. I know. So it's it's like even some of the ones that we think that we know about... Yeah, are not actually... Are not necessarily supposed to be glommed on but the the way that <laughs> the way that thousand and one's nights is structured you were supposed to add stories like into it so right it's at like this weird place but i have this quote from maria tatar she is an author and she's also the professor of german studies at harvard university she has a book that is coming out on april 7th and it is, it's about Snow White called The Fairest of Them All. And I just wanted to, I don't know her. I'm a fan of her work. And she's definitely not asking us to give her a shout out. But I saw, <laughs> I saw on Twitter of all places that she couldn't have a launch party for her book coming out, which is kind of a tragedy. Yeah. Like, it's it's one of those small tragedies that I think we're all kind of facing right now where we all have stuff that we have to, like, give up, not being able to do because we can't meet in big groups right now. Right. And so, you know, she worked really hard creating this anthology of Snow White stories, and she can't have a party 
to celebrate her. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you're probably going to be a fan of this book. Go ahead and buy it, read it, and you'll be ahead of the game when we finally do a Snow White episode because we'll be getting <laughs> all of our information from that book anyway. <laughs> <laughs> probably. She's a genius. So here's the quote from Maria Tatar about The Thousand and One Nights. The tangled skein that makes up The Thousand and One Nights and the history of its translations into English means that it is daunting to identify a standard version for any one particular story. A polyvocal anthology, The Nights, is a treasure trove of tales put together from Persian fables, the culture of medieval Baghdad, fairy tales from Egypt, in the Mameluk period, and other sources. The story of Hassan of Basra has been reshaped by many translators and transmitters. As a forerunner of the Swan Maiden story of Occidental cultures, Hassan of Basra reminds us that the ocean of stories is vast and deep, and that motifs, tropes, and memes that seem quintessentially European are in fact part of a vast global network. She sums that up way better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to be telling the story of Hassan of Basra. And inside of the book uh, by Maria Tatar, The Beauty and the Beast, classic tales about animal brides and grooms from around the world. <laughs> she says, she kind of mentions that this tale is like, really long. It has a lot of like extra stuff that really wasn't important to like kind of what was um, being discussed in the book. And so she used an abbreviated version by Edwin Sidney Hartland, who was a mm -hmm. British folklorist from 1891. And when I read the story and I was like, okay, but the person who kind of like, sh like shortened it, abbreviated it and stuff was a British man from 1891. So I wanted to kind of go back and like look at other versions to kind of see maybe if he had cut out stuff that might be important to like what we were discussing. And yeah. Maria Tatar was not joking when she said that the story is really long and it has like, <laughs> and then it has like a bunch of stuff that really is not necessary to the tale. <laughs> and so as I'm retelling you, I'm going to be both, Referring to the one that she included in this book, but also the one in Thousand and One Nights that I read, because I do want to give a little more backstory about this one character and what's going on. All right. Yep. So, Hassan of Basra. So, there once was a boy, and his name was Hassan. And let me guess, he was from Basra. <laughs> and he was from Basra. So he lived in Baghdad. What? Uh, yeah, what? With his mother. And oh. he was a goldsmith. And this, again, this is me like shortening it because there's so much. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> We've already skipped 20 pages of the story, but. Yeah. <laughs> that would be just just getting like, annoyed. Like, he's a guy. And then he lives through many different happenings in his life he became a goldsmith and he worked under another man as his apprentice as a goldsmith and one day a man from persia came in and in a thousand and one nights there's some pretty like obvious racial tension 
between Muslims and the Persians, especially this guy was a Magian, a Magi. Uh-huh. So there's a bit of kind of racial tension. So I'm sorry if I'm upsetting any Persians or Magians. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, because this story paints Magians very badly. And that's just because of like the history. But that's neither here nor there for the story currently. So this Persian came into the store and was watching how well Hassan was able to create works of art with gold. And so he said, you are so talented. You have so much like going for you. I, I want to teach you some special things that I do with metal. And Hassan was like, oh, I want to see what you're talking about. And so the Persian was like, I want you to go and find me something made out of copper And so he quickly, Hassan quickly went and grabbed some copper and he put it in a bowl and the Persian pulled out a piece of paper and unfolded it and inside was a pile of powder. And he sprinkled the powder on top of the copper and then heated it up in the forge Uh and it turned into a solid block of gold. What? This man was an alchemist. Alchemy. And he handed the block of gold to Hassan and was like, go and sell this for the highest price that you can. And so he ran out, uh, went down to like the marketplace and he sold the like nugget of gold for an incredible sum of money. And then he quickly ran back to the Persian and was like, that was amazing. I have grabbed some more copper (laughs) on my way back. Let's do it again. Let's do it it some more. (laughs) Yeah. And the Persian was like, nope, you can only do this once a year, because if I do it more than once a year, people are going to find out that I'm doing alchemy and they might hunt me down and arrest me for performing magic, for doing like all these things. So we can't. Plus, if you flood the market with gold, then the price of gold goes down because the supply and demand. I mean, we're getting into economics here again, Katrina. Yes, it's very important to consider (laughs) economic parts of fairy tales the what economic is this going impact to- of your actions <laughs> we have to find out fairy tale wise what's gonna happen um so hassan said i want you to come home with me i i want to take care of you i want you to stay with me and the persian was like of course i'll do that so he went back to hassan's house where his mother was and he said to his mother I have come into like all this money from this man and he is going to help us and it's going to be great. And his mother was like, you cannot trust this man. And Hassan was like, mom, he's already done so much for me. I like, I'm going to do it. She's like, you cannot trust this man. And he was like, Oh mom, you crazy woman. Um, and I think because of like cultural reasons, the mom couldn't be in the house at the same time as like another adult man because in the store, they don't explain it, but they were just like, and so then the mom had to go to the neighbor's house to stay while the man was there. Right. So I'm assuming for like cultural reasons. Right. So Hassan sat him down. They were feasting together. They were feasting together and the Persian took 
some other powder outside of his coat and he sprinkled it on top of the sweetmeats that Hassan was going to eat while Hassan was busy looking at something else like Uh in the other room getting drinks or something. So Hassan comes back into the room. He eats the meat, bump, passes out. Oh, man. And it is now revealed that the Persian is part of this other religion that he's like a Magian. Magi, it's the root of magician. Mm. Mm. Just for people. Just fun fact for yeah, people. Yeah, Magian, magician, sprinkling powders yeah. on stuff, doing... Yeah, doing alchemy magic, magic yeah. <laughs> so he reveals that he's actually, like, this, like, man, part of another religion, and he kidnaps Muslims and sacrifices them. Oh, no bueno. Which, again, this story does not necessarily <laughs> reflect reality of what was happening in an area... I just want to point out, because sometimes people are like, oh, they must have been kidnapping Muslims and murdering them. And I'm like, okay, no, <laughs> like, slow down. Um, just a story. story. Yeah, it's a story. You also can't turn copper into gold by sprinkling powder on it. <laughs> yeah, and it this story might have been used to kind of show how people who weren't Muslim were bad people. So that's kind of like some politics of like, storytelling and sticking stuff in there yeah, against groups that you don't like happens all the time happens Across all the time. Cultures. In, yeah, it does. So it's we're not all the first uni- time it's come up on our podcast. <laughs> it, it is not. So it's like, Oh, magic. Anyway, the human condition, <laughs> we all hate each other. So, <laughs> so anyway, the man has made Hassan pass out. And he, the powder that he gave him is going to make him sleep for, I think it was two full days or something. So the man throws Hassan into a chest and then gets him on a cart and has him carted to a boat. They get on a boat, they're in the middle of the water, and he opens up the chest and Hassan wakes up and they're in the middle of this water. So I'm about to cut out a whole section here. I want you to know that basically the reason that this section was included was to show that the powers of God were what saved Hassan in the water on the trip over. Uh-huh. And so, cause the story has very heavy, like religious roots that are not necessarily important to the story that we're telling. So right. I'm skipping over a whole bunch of parts where God saves Hassan, and it does come up later is why it is important for me to tell you, but to at least mention it. Got Um, it, got it. God saves Hassan multiple times. Multiple times crossing the ocean. They land on an island, and Hassan, even though he knows that the person that he is with is now like evil, Mm -hmm. the person says, Oh, I saw how God protected you so many times, so now I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to be good. And Hassan believes him because Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, probably. <laughs> he was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so he just believes him. The Magian does some magic so that camels come out of nowhere, out of like the sand. 
Oh. And they climb onto the camels. I know it's pretty incredible. That's a cool image. Like, <clears throat> of just like see them, the camels like, rising camels up out of the sand. Out of the sand, yeah. Because they're like, they, like walking. <laughs> they're, like, shake walking. off the last little bit. That is an awesome image. I love that. <laughs> so they climb onto these camels and they go out into the desert for like seven days. And as they're walking on these camels, they pass by in the distance. They see this giant palace off in the distance. And Hassan asks, whose palace is that? And the Magi says, dude, it's really none of your business. Don't bring it up (laughs) again. (laughs) And Hassan was like, oh, okay. So he doesn't bring it up again because it's none of his business. So (laughs) he... (laughs) So they keep walking until they get to another mountainous area and it is just a sheer cliff all the way up into the clouds and the magian says to him that is the mountain that parts the skies above that cloud line there is even more tall mountain outside it goes so high up there and you are going to go up there and Hassan was like I don't think I can do that because it's straight up. It's just like a spike sticking out of the sky. And he's like, Uh. "Ah." (laughs) and he's like, no, no, no. Like I need to repay you for all the bad things that I've done. And this is the way that we get the powder for the alchemy. And Hassan was like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, well, this is the only way to get that powder. And like, because the ingredients that I need are up there. And so Hassan was like, well, you know what? I trust, I trust that I will be protected from heaven. And so I'm going to listen to you. And so they bake some bread, get some water, and then summon the camels back out of the sand. And the Magian goes over to one of the camels and slices it open. Ooh, Tauntaun style. He takes a nap inside of it. <laughs> So he slits open the camel and skins the whole thing. Why? Oh, you'll find out. Okay. Oh, be ready. <laughs> so, and then and then he just climbs the mountain uh, and does nothing with the skin. It's just was for fun. Yeah, like these are side details. <laughs> <laughs> so he skins the camel and then he tells Hassan to lay down in the skin so that he can sew him up. Into the skins. Tauntaun style. Wow, I was making a joke, but it turned out to be true. <laughs> so, Hassan lays down, and the Magian hands him a knife, and he says, when you feel, you're going to feel like you're lifted off of the ground, when you feel like you're on solid ground again, take the knife and slit open where I just sewed you in. And Hassan's like, okay, that sounds crazy. so he but he's like but i trust so he gets sewn up into the camel skin and the magian leaves kind of the area like backs away and is like hiding under like whatever trees and stuff there are and out from the clouds flies a giant roke r-o-k no r-o-c a roke and a roke is a mythical animal 
from Arabia. And so it's a massive <laughs> eagle, like a giant okay. uh, dragon-sized like-, <laughs> like eagle. We're talking Lord of the Rings, like the birds. Ooh, yeah. And, yeah. Rescue him from Mount Doom. Yes. Except this one's going to take him up gonna take to him Mount to Doom. the mountain. So, oh, yeah. no. So it flies down from the mountain and it grabs onto the camel thinking that it's meat, like that it's food. He grabs onto him and he flies him all the way up to the top of the mountain. And at the top of the mountain is this bird's nest. Just this like massive, massive nest. And it's full of sticks and bones. Sticks for the nest and bones for from everybody he is eaten. <laughs> so the bird flies off to do something else. They don't specify. And so Hassan cuts himself out of the skin and he hops out and he shouts down the mountain, which I'm like, how can this guy hear you? But he does because <laughs> this is based on reality. So he like yells down the mountain and is like, all I see up here is sticks and bones. And the Magian cries up like, yes, bundle up six bundles of sticks and then throw them down the mountain for me because that is what gets ground up as powder is the... The sticks from this nest. From the nest, yeah. From this, like, mythical bird. So Hassan does that and he throws them down. And when they're down, he yells out, okay, now how do I get down? And the guy was like, you're an idiot! (laughs) Bye! (laughs) Bye! He's like, I was bad the whole time. Why did you think that I said that was going to stop being a bad person? Uh. And so the Magian leaves. And for a while, Hassan kind of walked around the perimeter of the top of this mountain, but it was all just like sheer straight down. On the side that he had come from, it was kind of like desert area, but on the other side, it was the ocean. But he knew his choices, because he was so high up, that his choices were wait to get eaten by the bird or jump. And so... Jump to my death into the desert or jump to my death into the ocean? Yes. So he chose to jump to his death into the ocean. (laughs) And But before he did that, he said a prayer asking to be preserved. Mm. And then he leapt. And the winds caught him and gently placed him down back on dry land. And so he went on a little leap wind, of faith. wind ride. Oh, we, a <laughs> leap of faith. Oh, my goodness. So he's like, all right, now what do I do? So he starts walking and he comes across that palace that he had seen before. I know this is none of my business, <laughs> like, but... <laughs> I know this place is none of my business. I know people were probably really hoping I would get back to the palace and that it wasn't <laughs> some, like, weird random aside. Anyway, so he goes up to the palace, and it's, like, completely empty. He can't find, like, anybody there until he walks into this one grand palace room, and there are two women, young women just sitting and talking with each other and hanging out. And they look over at him and they're like, what are you doing here? And he was like, I don't know. I think God sent me here. 
And they were like, our prayers have been answered. We've been so lonely here. And he's like, what's going on, ladies? And they were basically like, oh, we have been in this castle for a really long time. Our dad is a jinn, a J-I-N-N, which are mm. related to genies. Mm-hmm. And... So she's like, our dad is like the king or is like one of the kings of the jinn. And when he had seven daughters and people wanted to start marrying us, he was like, absolutely no. So he hid them away in the mountains. (laughs) So there's seven sisters that are all living in this palace. And the other five that weren't in the room at the time, they were out hunting. They all just take turns going out hunting and hanging out with each other. They're like strong warrior jinn women but they're just kind of stuck in this grand palace in the middle of nowhere so a bunch of other stuff happens where the ladies actually help him get back at the magian so i want everyone to know that guy gets what's coming to him it's totally fine (laughs) but we're not going to get into it because it's neither here nor there for us so Hassan's hanging out with these seven ladies. They're all just best friends. They call him like their little brother and he's really happy to just be hanging out with them and part of their like little family. He's not alone. He's well fed. Everything's great. But then, but but their father's entourage from his kingdom showed up. So Hassan went and hid because he definitely was not supposed to be there. (laughs) So he like went and hid and the daughters were like, why, why are you all here? And they were like, your dad sent for you. There's going to be this big royal wedding and you have to be there. And so you have to like come. And they're like, well, how long will we be gone? And they were like, uh, probably about two months. And they're like, okay, just give us a second to like kind of pack in, like get ready or whatever. And the guards are like, okay, cool, fine. So they go to Hassan and they're like, we are so sorry. They'd been living there for like a year and a half together or something. Um, So they were all like really close friends, but they were like, we have to go. We're so sorry because you're going to be here completely by yourself. You can go anywhere in like the, the like house. You can do like whatever you want. But here's a key to guess what the key is to Jeff. To a room that he is not to enter under any circumstances. Of course, of course it is. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what it was. It was a key. You can't go into this room, but here's the key anyway. Oh, and they're like, and they're like, don't go into this room. And he's like, okay, cool. So for the first month, he's totally fine. He's like just trying to busy himself, like hunting, eating food, reading books, doing whatever. I think we all know what it's like being trapped in our houses for a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> Relatable content here. That's what we provide for you. So... He started to get bored and he was like, why, why can't I go into this room? And he's like, well, I trust them. I love them. So whatever is behind that door is probably something that will kill me. So maybe I shouldn't go because there's something behind the door that will like kill me. And my friends wouldn't want me to get killed. That's why. But on the other hand, (laughs) but on the other hand, like I'm really, really bored. So he decided he was going to just open the door like a little bit. (laughs) Every time, Jeff, they're always like, here's a key. Don't open the door. Five seconds later. Oh, my goodness. But I actually appreciate that I saw it. It took him like months. Yeah. Completely by himself. 
So Hassan decided that he was going to slowly open the door just a little bit in case, like, there was something scary, he could quickly close the door. So he goes over the door and he unlocks it and he starts pulling it open and he peeks in. Nothing. There's nothing in this room. The only thing that's in this room is a black onyx staircase that leads up out of the room. And he was like, what in the world? So curiosity, of course, got the better of him. And he was like, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) So he decides that he's going to go and he's going to climb up this staircase. So he climbs and he climbs and he climbs and he climbs and he climbs. And when he gets to the top and he opens the door that's at the top, he walks out and he's suddenly in this beautiful rooftop garden. And it is as high up in the mountains as, like, he was basically with the the magical bird. Yeah, with the eagle's nest. He's he's at that, like, really high up, and the gardens are immaculate and beautiful, and there are birds singing. And he wanders over to this kind of gazebo-type area. It's completely covered in, like, a roof of plants, like a trellis. Going up mm-hmm. and and inside the dome is this beautiful like pool, and he was like, "Wow, that like that's a really beautiful pool of water. This is a really beautiful garden, and there's fruit hanging off of trees, like jewels, like just everything glorious and beautiful." And he was like, "Why would my friends tell me not to come up into this garden?" And as he was pondering upon that, he looked up and he saw ten swans a swimming no (laughs) a flying (laughs) (laughs) um so he saw these 10 white birds flying over to him and so he knew that he wasn't supposed to be there so he he kind of ducked down because he was like oh maybe this is like a wildlife area he doesn't say a wildlife (laughs) sanctuary (laughs) Oh, is this, this a wildlife sanctuary? Oh, no, but pond, he, this is protected wetlands. I shouldn't yeah, be here. I shouldn't be here. But he was like, oh, this is probably where they come and swim and I shouldn't disrupt them. Mm-hmm. So he kind of just like pulls back into some hedges and he waits and the birds land by the pond and they pull off their feathers and like a suit. <laughs> <laughs> like, and... What steps out are ten virgins, ten naked virginal women. And Jeff, oh, I want to tell you some of the way that they are described <laughs> because I was like, so what's fascinating to me about the way that women are described when they're talking about how beautiful they are is uh-huh. that it, it reflects what uh, men found sexually desirable at the time, like when it was right. recorded, because they wouldn't yeah. be like, "Oh, that woman was so beautiful, like all of her teeth were missing, and she like <laughs> was drooling on my face." Like, right? They, yeah, yeah, they yeah, describe yeah. what they actually. And I'm sorry if that's somebody's kink, and I just like kink shamed you for liking toothless <laughs> women drooling on your body. I didn't mean it to offend you. <laughs> So all this part, I was like, that's interesting. They said she had a mouth like Solomon's seal, which I don't know what that means. (laughs) 
But it was hot. But it was hot. <laughs> and hair blacker than the night of estrangement to the despairing lover. Oh, like, wow. Hmm. Very poetic. I guess. Um, her belly was full of folds and dimples, such as enforce the distracted lover to magnify God. <laughs> That's a great pickup line there. <laughs> I was like, I love that. Because, like, I also, my belly is full of folds and dimples so much that it distracts a lover to magnify God. Uh, she had thighs great and plump, like columns of marble or, bol- uh, or bolsters stuffed with ostrich down. <laughs> And then it talks about what she had between her legs, which I'm not going to read here because then it gets slightly untoward. Um, <laughs> but to summarize, she was dummy thick. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, I love that. They're like, she had like gorgeous black hair and thick thighs. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> her stomach had so many folds. It made me want to glorify God. I'm like, yes, <laughs> thank you. So anyway, I love that. And that was my aside. It's not the main point or focus of this story, but I just wanted to point it out. Anyway, so super, all 10 women, very attractive in the nude, climbing into this pool. But one of them just, just he was completely in awe of her and her thighs. So he immediately just was completely in awe and in love with her so much so that like, he just immediately like his heart was on fire in pain of like, I want her so bad. And he realized that probably the reason why they told him not to come up there was because he would like meet these women meet that one woman and feel so much like pain at not being able to like have her. Yeah. He was like, oh, my friends were trying to protect me. So, which they were. We'll get into that. But anyway. But he wouldn't listen. But he wouldn't listen. So, the women got out of the water. They put back on their bird suits, turned back into the birds that they were, and then they flew away. So, he, like, basically went back into the house and laid in a cupboard for 10 days. He, he kept trying to like go upstairs and try to wait to see if they would come back, but they didn't come back for 10 days. So he didn't eat or drink for 10 days. He just sat and he sobbed because he wanted this woman so bad and he, his heart was like broken. <laughs> We've all been there, man. So, yep. So at the end of the 10th day, all of the like princesses who had lived inside of that castle with him, yeah, they came back. And they, the youngest one, who was the first one who had met him, she immediately went in search for him because she was like, man, I haven't seen my friend in like two months. I feel bad for him. And she like opened a cupboard and he was like in a cupboard, like (laughs) crying (laughs) and like emaciated. I know. And she was like, oh no, we left you for too long. Like. What happened to you? And he was like, I don't want to tell you because I'm really ashamed. I don't want to make you mad. And she's like, I won't be mad. Like, just tell me what's wrong. Like, I care about you. You're obviously in a bad way. And she was like, is it because we left like for too long? Is it, is it been bad? 
And he was like, no, I did a bad thing. You told me not to use the key and I used the key and I went up to the roof and she was like, wait, what? And he was like, the key that you gave me to the door, you said not to open it. And she was like, oh, I had no idea it was back there. <laughs> I was like, why did you give me this key? And it basically, she was like, no, like we're supposed to be keeping like the key safe. Like our dad gave it to us, like keep it safe, but we don't know what it's for. Like why? Just not to go up there or like to use it. Yeah. And he was like, oh, <laughs> there's like a garden up there. And there were some birds that turned into women. And she was like, bro, I'm going to need you to show me and like explain because none of what you're saying is making sense. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm like, uh, like total. I love like kind of that twist of the key of she was like, what? We have no idea. Yeah, we didn't know why. <laughs> we're just not supposed to use it. So he takes her out like into the garden is like showing her around explains what happened. And she was like, Oh my goodness. I think I know what happened. She was like, this palace used to belong to another really powerful gin. And these gardens were used by the king, the king of all gin. So when we got this palace for my dad to hide us in, that this must be a place for like the king of the jinn's daughters and who you probably saw was like the oldest daughter of the most powerful jinn coming <laughs> to like take a bath like this like ritual bath that they do like once a month and she was like yeah you definitely should not be up here <laughs> um, <laughs> And he was like, but I'm so in love with her. Like, I'm absolutely sick from being so in love with her. And she was like, there's not really a good way for you to do anything about that. And he's like, no, but like, I love her. And she's like, the only way that you would be able to keep her is if you like stayed up here and you saw her take off her feathers and you stole her feather suit. All of the others would leave you would leave her to go back home. And if you sneak up and grab her by the hair and like drag her back into the house, like she'll be yours forever. But that's like the only way. And it's very not safe because like you'd be angering some very powerful people. And he yeah. was like, I know, but like she was real hot. <laughs> her thighs. <laughs> Like, you would not believe. So the daughter was like, well, okay, like, I guess whatever, like, you want to do. When the first of the month came and the birds flew back, he did just that. He hid in the hedges. And when she took off her clothes, he quickly dragged them into the hedges so that she couldn't see. And then when she came out of the water and everyone was getting dressed without her, and she was like, calling out like where are my where are my feathers who is it that has stolen my feathers but he had been instructed that if he were to answer her then all would be lost and he would immediately be killed because she'd be mad <laughs> which i'm like fair enough give the woman her clothes back yeah creep uh, yeah creep all of her attendants flew away and she was standing there and he grabs her by the hair Drags her, like, back into the house. So he snatches her and uh, keeps her feather cloak hidden from her. They get married. 
They end up having two kids and he moves back to Baghdad, Mm -hmm. back in with his mother, who, by the way, she's been crying the whole time. Oh, man. Like, just legitimately so. She's, like, been crying, like, the whole time. The mom isn't, I guess, like, there's a whole thing with, like, mother-in-law complications, whatever. But the bird maiden... She was able to trick her mother-in-law into giving her her feathers back. And the second that she got her feathers back, she turned into a bird, took her kids, and flew all the way back to her father's kingdom. But she left a note that said, if you really want to get me back, you have to come and get me. And again, the story goes on and on and on and on. He eventually does get her back um, after he goes through all of these like ordeals and stuff. But the main important points that I wanted people to remember are magicians sewing people up in clothes of other skins, like being like, and then magic putting clothes on people. I know that was like a really fast, crappy wrap up <laughs> to like a really, it's, there's so I cut I see I cut out so much of that story and it's still but that section is like the important part for us is that stuff which I'm like I'm so sorry people because this could probably be like a three-part episode just on that one story (laughs) if you like if you want the whole entire long story but if people want I can tell you the name of that story so if people are really interested, they want to know the whole story and they don't want to like wait to find out if I ever make a three-part episode all about this story. It's <laughs> called Hassan of Basora and the King's Daughter of the Jinn in one translation. It's very hard to hunt down one single story inside of a collection because some translations have them, some translations don't. And they're um, like, t- the titles are different in different translations, yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah, the titles are different in different translations. And so, yeah, so good luck finding it. <laughs> but those elements that I want people to kind of keep in mind are like him, the Hassan being sewed up into skins that were not his own, because that's going to come up in stories in the future. Just the idea of like magical skins and also swan maidens. And maidens that are, like, cursed to wear another skin. And also husbands in search of lost wives. Because Cupid and Psyche, Hans my Hedgehog, Uh and um, East of the Sun, West of the Moon that we've mentioned in this episode, all of those fall under In Search of Lost Husband. Right. Tales. But this one... It's like the reverse. is, Is the reverse... And you'll see several that are husband in search of the lost wife. Interesting. Nothing is better after a long day cruising down Route 66 than finding a great place to get delicious food. Before you stop in at the famous Jackrabbit Trading Post, head over to Mr. G's Pizza in idyllic Joseph City, Arizona. Enjoy pizzas made to order, toasted subs, or fresh salads. And when you're done... Grab some ice cream to enjoy while you get back on that beautiful Route 66. Remember to ask for Andy and let him know that he needs to pay those traffic fines whether or not the aliens do come back for him. 
He won't need that money in space. Mr. G's Pizza has been family-owned for 25 years, and when you're there, you're family too. But not Andy. He just works there. And Jeff now is going to tell us a Russian tale that includes some of these elements. Yeah, there was like, as I was listening to the this story, I was like, ooh, there's a lot of things that I see how it relates to the story I'm going to tell. I try not to just like pointlessly yeah. like pick stories that like have nothing to do with it. I would, I'm like, I wouldn't have told that if it was unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully people know that about me, that I'm not trying to tell unnecessary stories. None of them are unnecessary. <laughs> They're all fun and entertaining in their own way. But I really like Indeed. this one. Indeed. All right, yes, it is called The Frog Princess. And like many stories, it starts many years ago. And there was was many years ago a czar, and he had three sons. And when his sons came of age, he said to them, he's like, look, guys, I'm getting old. I want you guys to get married so I can see my grandchildren before I die. And then the sons are like, okay, well, you know, give us your blessing. Who are we supposed to marry? He's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to take your bows, go out into the field, and you're going to shoot an arrow. And wherever it lands, that's where you're going to find your wife. So the sons, being obedient, you know, bowed to their father. They took their bows, went to the fields, and just drew them and shot seemingly at random, which there could have been a better strategy there, just going to say. But the eldest son's arrow, despite his lack of strategy or aiming, flew through the sky and landed... in a nobleman's courtyard where it was picked up by the nobleman's daughter. Uh, And the second son, his arrow sailed, boom, landed in the courtyard of a merchant and was picked up by the merchant's daughter. And the arrow shot by the youngest son who had the worst aim, but I guess the strongest bow and bow pulling arm of them all. I'm not sure how archery works. His arrow flew so high and so far that he didn't even know where it went. So he's like, Oh, man. And he started to walk and walk and walk in the direction that his arrow went and eventually came across a marsh. And he saw a frog in the marsh. And the frog had the arrow in its mouth. Not like it had been, like, shot through the mouth because that would be horrifying. But he would, like, the 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 frog was just, like, chomp down on the arrow. And he's like, like a uh, Like a rose. Yeah, like, like a rose, like... like Hello, here I am to be your wife. And he's like, oh, frog, just give me back my arrow. But then the frog was like, and had like spit the arrow out. And there was like, take me to be your wife if you want your arrow back. There's only (laughs) one frog voice. And that's it. And the prince is like, oh, come on. I can't marry you. You're a frog. It's like, but you must. That's what your dad said. It's the czar's will. You got to marry the one who got the arrow. So the prince is like arguing with this frog in the marsh. And then he's like, oh, fine. And he just accepts his fate and walks home. And so, you know, the czar started arranging for the marriages, the eldest to the nobleman's daughter, the second son to the merchant's daughter, and the unhappy prince, Ivan, to the frog. And I love when they give their characters names because it makes it so much easier to refer to them. It does. So, after the weddings, the czar summoned his sons again and said, he's like, I want to see which one of your wives is like the best needlewoman, all right? So, I want them to make, all your wives to each make me a shirt by tomorrow. So, the son's like, yes, father, they bowed and they went to tell their wives. But Prince Ivan, like, sulked into his house and was like, 
uh, looking all miserable, and the frog was jumping around on the floor, and he was like, "Oh, you look you look kind of sad, Prince Ivan. What's the matter?" He's like, "Oh, my father wants you to make a shirt by tomorrow, but you're a stupid frog, so I know that you can't do it." And so she's like, <laughs> "Don't worry about it. You just go to bed, and you'll feel better in the morning." And so he goes off to bed, and the frog jumped onto the veranda, threw off its skin, and turned into the wise princess. Vasilisa, who is a maiden so beautiful that words could never describe her. But Hassan could probably give it a run for for their money. <laughs> her thighs were popping. So she's like... No, her, her thighs were hopping. Her, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> frog legs. <laughs> yes, her, fry, her thighs were hopping. So she takes off her frog skin. She's a beautiful princess. And she claps her hands and she's like, Call, my faithful attendants gather around and listen to me. You know, I need you to sew me a shirt, which I kind of feel like that's cheating. But anyway, she's like, make me one like my <laughs> father used to wear. So the prince wakes up the next morning. She had put back on her frog skin and she was jumping around the floor again. But there was a shirt there that was wrapped in linen lying on the table. And the prince was like super stoked. He picked it up and took it to his father. And, you know, the, the czar took the shirts from the other sons. And the first wife, he was like, oh, this looks like a shirt that you could, you know, and you just wear for your everyday wear. Takes her from the second one. He's like, ugh, I could only take a bath in this piece of crap shirt throws it off to the side and then prince ivan sad sad prince ivan unfolds his shirt and it is like a beautiful shirt embroidered with gold and silver threads like intricate patterns and the star takes one look at it and presumably looking all around the the room that he's in he's like now that is a shirt (laughs) he's like i can wear this on important occasions and so he's super stoked, and the two old brothers went off, and they're remarking to each other. And he's like, "Oh, I guess we're too laugh, too too quick to laugh at Ivan's wife. She's not a frog; she must be a witch." And then later on, the czar sent for them again. Is like, you know what? I want each of your wives to bake a loaf of bread by tomorrow, and I want to find out which one of your wives is the best cook. And so Prince Ivan once again sulks home, and he's like, "Oh man!" And the frog, of course, is like, "What's the matter, Prince Ivan?" He's like, "Ugh." My dad wants you to bake a loaf of bread, but you can't do it because you're a dumb old frog. And she's like, don't worry about it. Just go to bed and we'll have a loaf by the morning. And so he does. <laughs> the, the two older sons, having made fun of the frog wife, but she made like the best shirt possible, were like, okay, we want to go and send one of our like kitchen women to spy on how the frog was going to break the bread because they're like, if this frog can make really great shirts, maybe they can make great bread as well. So the frog... Being wise, you know, kind of figured out their scheme. And after kneading the dough, it made a hole in the top of the brick oven and poured the dough in through the hole. And so the woman, the kitchen woman saw what was done and ran to tell the elder brother's wives. And so they went to work and did the same thing as the frog. But after Prince Ivan had gone to bed, the frog jumped out on the veranda, turned into the wise princess again, clapped her hands and said, you know, my faithful attendants, gather around and listen, bake me bread by morning. And it's got to be soft white bread like the bread I ate at my father's table. So when the prince wakes up the next morning, a loaf of bread was there lying on the table and it was decorated with these like really nice designs and it was like shaped like a city with walls and gates and all that stuff. And this Prince Ivan, you know, sad old Prince Ivan was ecstatic. So he wrapped the bed in a clean cloth and took it to his father. And so when he arrived, the father was receiving the bread from the other brothers But because they had poured their dough in through the top of the oven like they had seen the frog doing, their their bread was just, like, burnt to a crisp. So, like, 
the the father's standing there with these like two burnt bricks in his hands like this is garbage but then prince ivan hands him his loaf and he's like now this is bread this should only be eaten on you know the most spectacular of occasions and so the the czar arranged for a banquet for the next day and ordered his sons to attend with their wives and of course ivan thinking of the fact that his brothers are going to be bringing these like beautiful rich women to the banquet and he's going to be bringing his dumb old frog <laughs> regardless <laughs> of the fact that she's great at baking bread and making shirts was yeah, she's been very nice to him i know he's a jerk but he's all like uh bummed out about it so of course he mopes up into his room and into his house again and the frog's like prince ivan what are you looking so miserable for has your father said something mean to you and he's like oh how can i help it my dad wants me to bring you to a banquet. And how can I show you to people? You're just a stupid frog. She's like, don't grieve, Prince Ivan. You know, you go to the banquet by yourself. So she tells him to go by himself. I don't want to do that whole thing in a frog voice. That would get very tiring. So oh she's gosh. like, go to, the, go to the banquet by yourself and I'll come later. And when you hear a knock and a clap of thunder, don't be afraid. But if anyone asks you what it means, just say, you know, oh, my frog is coming. She's going to be riding in a little box. <laughs> Yeah, I was like... That's my bride. She's in a box. It's like, yes, that explains everything. <laughs> so he goes to the banquet alone, and his older brothers are there. And, of course, their wives are dressed in this, like, great clothes, fancy jewelry. They've got makeup all over their faces. They're looking fresh. And he's there all alone. And then they laughed at Prince Ivan. They're like, ha, 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 where did you find that beauty of a wife of yours? You could have carried her in here in a handkerchief. Oh, it must take you a long time to search the marshes for her. And, you know, Ivan just yeah. sitting there feeling sorry for himself. Because he's got jerk brothers. Because he's got jerk brothers who are ragging on him for his frog wife. And so the czar, the sons, the wives, they all sit down at these big tables with tablecloths. And they start to feast. And just then, boom, there's a loud knock and a clap of thunder. So powerful that it shook the entire palace. And so the guests were all freaked out. But Prince Ivan was just sitting there like, oh... Don't be afraid. It's just my little frog coming. She's riding in a little box. But at that moment, this like gilded carriage, golden carriage drawn by the like, beautiful white horses comes up to the front gate of the czar's house and Princess Vas- Vasilisa steps out and she's wearing like this like blue gown studded with stars and she's got like the shining like crown on her head. And she was so beautiful that everyone at the party was just like stopped and stared at her. And she goes up to Prince Ivan and takes him by hand and sits down at the table. And so the guests start eating and drinking and being happy. And uh, But Vasilisa, she just takes like one little sip from her glass and pours the rest into her sleeve. Which I'm like, that's a weird thing to do with your drink. Yeah, that's a party foul right there. (laughs) And then she like just like nibbled at her plate of swan meat, which are swans a thing that you eat? Anyway. I guess they're birds. They're big birds. I'm sure they're full of meat. There's plenty of meat that you can put on. So she's nibbling at the swan. there's meat in there. And she drops the bones of the swan meat into her other sleeves. And so when the other brothers' wives saw what she was doing, they're like, oh, we're going to do the same thing. So they start pouring wine into their sleeves and bones into their other sleeves. And once the eating and drinking was done, it was time for dancing. And so, you know, the wise Vasilisa took Prince Ivan's hand and they started dancing together. And she was like an amazing dancer. She danced so beautiful that all the guests were just like amazed. They couldn't believe it. And as they were were dancing, you know, Ivan and Vasilisa, she waved her left left sleeve and suddenly 
a lake was formed in the hall, like magic. Probably Gorgeous. was magic. Just a big, beautiful lake. <laughs> it probably was magic. <laughs> Not just like a euphemism for she made a huge mess by spraying the whole place with wine. And then she waved her other sleeve and suddenly all these white swans floated down onto the lake. And everyone, the czar and all his guests were just like filled with amazement. Like, how can this be possible? This is so beautiful. It's amazing. And so the elder brother's wives are also dancing and they're like, oh yeah? Well, let me show you what I can do. And so they throw their sleeves about and instead they're just spraying people with wine and flinging bones about the banquet hall. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the bones hits the czar in the eye. And so he's ticked. So he kicks them out. He's like, get out of here and drives them off. And so, you know, meanwhile, I don't know why, but Prince Ivan like sneaks out because I guess he's embarrassed that now his wife is like awesome. And he went home and that is went, hard. And when he, it's I hard know, to have my, hus- a- my husband is also <laughs> leaving parties early because of how embarrassed he is that I'm awesome. <laughs> so he goes home. Prince Ivan goes home and he finds the frog skin lying on the veranda. And he's like, ew, gross. What is this doing here? And so he takes it and he throws it in the fire and he burns it. And so when Prince Vasilisa comes back and she sees that the frog skin's gone, she sits down and she's like, Tells her husband, he's like, oh, no, Ivan, what have you done? You know, if only you'd waited three more days, we could have been together forever. But now I got to go. You can look for me in the 13th kingdom beyond three times nine lands, which I'm like, I thought this was a fairy tale. I didn't think I was going to have to do math. And then she's like, like, not again. (laughs) And then you'll find me with Cachet the Deathless. And then she turned into a cuckoo bird and flew out the window. And the prince was, (laughs) yeah. When you see your wife turn into a cuckoo bird and fly away, one, you're like, wow, is that a metaphor? And two, you just weep bitterly on the floor. And so he bowed to all four points of the compass and went off into the world to seek his wife, the wise Princess Vasilisa, who he was now, I guess, cool with because he found out she wasn't just a dumb frog after all. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot more disappointing of a reason. He's like, oh, this person is awesome and that's why I'm going to go look for them because I'm motivated by I found out that they're actually secretly hot. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to like in East of the Sun, West of the Moon and Keep It in Psyche, the women had fallen in love with their mysterious husbands that they yeah, couldn't see. Before they could even see them, yeah. So they didn't before know they Before they could even see them. So I just want to point out that men... Are, are shallow. Uh, this yeah. is not groundbreaking. <laughs> This is not a groundbreaking observation. I'm like, breaking news. But he was walking for so long that he wore out his boots. He wore his clothes to rags. The rain was soaking through his hat. And one day he came across this old man. And the old man's like, hello, young man. What are you looking for? And so the prince tells him the whole story. And he's like, ah, Prince Ivan, rookie mistake. Why did you burn the frog skin? He's like, (laughs) (laughs) It's like uh, he was like, it's not like you had to wear it or take it off. He's like, oh, <laughs> Vasilisa, she was much cleverer and wiser than her father. And so this guy, this actually, this old guy was in the know, and he's like, oh, you know, she was annoyed that her father ordered her to be a frog for three years, but you know what's what's done can't be undone. He's like, but I got this magic ball for you, so take this ball and follow it wherever it rolls, and it'll lead you where you need to go. So he's like, okay, thank you. Um, And so he like rolls the ball and just starts following this rolling ball. And 
<laughs> which just cracks me up for some reason to just imagine like this prince like walking after a ball that just is continually rolling through the countryside. He just like looks like a little kid who's like lost their ball and it keeps rolling and they like go to grab it <laughs> and then it, just and then kick it, it moves and it keeps going. It's like, oh, yeah, no. and he's like, no, no. <laughs> so he follows the ball to the open country and he sees a bear. And so he's like, oh, you know what? I'm kind of hungry because I've been walking for a long time. So he takes his bow and he's about to shoot it. But then the bear speaks to him in a human voice. He's like, hey, Prince Ivan, don't kill me because someday I might be of service to you. And the prince was like, whoa, talking bear, but also, okay. So he went his way without shooting it. Then he sees a drake flying through the air, which a drake is a male duck. Yep, you're correct. I knew it was a duck. What's a female duck called? Female ducks are called hens. Hen. Cool. So he sees a drake flying above him in the air. And so he takes aim at the drake to shoot the drake because, again, hungry. But then the drake swoops down and is like, hey, Prince Ivan, don't shoot me. One day, I might be of service to you. And he's like, how come all these talking animals know my name? He's like, okay, whatever. So he goes on his way. And then the next thing, he sees a hare. So he goes to shoot the hare. Same story. Hey, Prince Ivan, don't kill me. I'm a hare. I might be of service to you someday. So he lets the hare go. Then he goes to the sea and he sees like a fish, a pike, lying in the sand. And he was like hardly able to breathe. And he wasn't even trying to kill this one, but the, the, the fish is just like, <gasps> I can't breathe out here. Will you please put me back in the water? And so Prince Ivan takes pity on this fish, throws him back into the water and keeps kicking his ball along the sand until eventually it rolls into a forest where it sees a little hut standing on a chicken leg and twisting round and round, which did not strike him weird at all that there was a hut spinning round and round on a chicken leg because he knew exactly what to do. And he says, little hut, little hut, stand just as you were built with your back to the forest and your front to me. And the hut obeyed him. Yes, because sometimes you just have to have like a firm and steady voice when you're talking to a hut. When you're talking to an animated hut, speak with authority and it'll do what you say. So he goes into the hut, which had obeyed. And he goes inside and he sees an old witch, the Baba Yaga. We all saw that one come in. Lying on top of the stove with her chin resting on the shelf at the top of the stove and her nose pressed up against the ceiling. Just visualize that for a second. Lying on top of the stove, her chin on the shelf and her nose pressed up against the ceiling. Why would anyone be like that? That is a strange thing to walk in on in someone else's house, especially if it's a a little hut in the forest that's on a chicken foot. Anyway, Baba Yaga, who is doing something very important, was like, why have you called on me, young fellow? And she's like, are you seeking a fortune or are you running away from it? And so he's like, hey, before you start asking questions, you need to give me a food and a drink and a hot bath. And so Baba Yaga, again, because he spoke very authoritatively, I guess, gave him exactly what he asked, hot bath, food and drink. Let him go to bed. And then the prince finally tells her, he's like, I'm looking for my wife. She's the wise princess Vasilisa. You might have heard of her because apparently everyone around here, even the animals know who she is. And she's like, I know, I know, I know. She's with the cachet of the deathless now. Oh boy, this is going to be a tough one to get her away from him. But here's what you got to do. His death, the death of the deathless, is at the point of a needle. And that needle is in an egg, and that egg is in a duck, and the duck is in a hare, and the hare is sitting in a stone chest, and the stone chest is in the crown of a lofty oak. And Cachet the Deathless guards that oak as if it were the apple of his eye. Which that's just... That makes sense. Yeah. Because I'm like... Where else would you hold your death? 
Yeah, it's Superman and kryptonite, except that it's like he put all of the kryptonite <laughs> inside of something and then it's just sitting on top of it. Like okay. Inside of a thing, inside of a thing, inside of another thing, sitting on something, and then you guard that thing. Anyway, so Prince Ivan spends the night, and the next morning she tells him how to get to this oak. And so he finds the spot, and he sees up in the crest, you know, the stone chest. But he was like, that's so high. I'm never going to be able to get there. Suddenly, a bear runs in out of nowhere and just tears the oak tree up by its roots. And so the chest falls and it gets smashed to pieces. But when the chest is smashed to pieces, the hair that was inside of it jumps out and takes off at like top speed. But then the second hair that he had saved earlier chases after it, overtakes it, and tears that hair to pieces. And so when that hair is getting torn to pieces, a duck flies out of the hair. And it goes right up into the sky. And then he's like, oh, man, how am I ever going to get that? And then the drake that he spared from earlier swoops in, boom, kicks that duck's butt. And that duck is hit so hard. Pops out. Which was probably a hen that it was hit so hard (laughs) that the egg inside of it fell out and dropped into the sea. And at that, Ivan was so, so sad because he's like, no, how am I ever going to get this egg out of the sea? But then suddenly, a pike swam up to the shore with the egg in its mouth. So the prince took the egg, cracked it open, took out the needle, and snapped the point off. And as he snapped it, Cachet the Deathless writhed and struggled, and he could do nothing because, you know, the prince had found his kryptonite, and Cachet the Deathless was now Cachet the Dead. And so the prince went to his castle, and there was the princess who ran out to meet him. She kissed him on the lips. And Prince Ivan and Princess Vasilisa returned home and they lived happily to a very ripe old age. The end. Yay. And I was tempted I like to be that like. in Russian, they keep out happily. <laughs> yeah, I was like, they lived to, a, they did say happily. They lived happily oh, to a ripe old was, age. But then at oh. a ripe old age, they realized that they had drifted farther and farther apart. And they decided to get a divorce and both died alone and miserable. Yay. Just kidding. So one thing that I want to briefly kind of talk about, uh, the character Baba Yaga. Yes. Briefly, she got a mention in one of our episodes at Christmas time, Russian, Russian Winter Tales. Baba Yaga, she's so interesting because she has some of her same roots story-wise with Perchta and Mother Holly and like those kind of terrifying Women that live in the woods and are Gryla. I keep thinking of more. These like European old women that live in the woods that are either going to be really nice to you or they're going to slice your belly open. And so a lot of the stories that people know about Baba Yaga, she is like a cannibalistic old witch mm-hmm. in the woods, just like in Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. Where there's like an old lady who lives in the woods who likes to eat children. Um, but Baba Yaga, there's another story that includes a character called Vasilisa. Names and fairy tales get reused. I'm sure we'll talk about that too at a later date. Cause that's another <laughs> thing that happens like a ton where there's a ton of stories about Jack's and Hans and every country kind of has their own. So Ivan and Vasilisa are kind of like the Russian, the Russian version ones that, yeah, that come up a lot. Um, but there's a story called Vasilisa, the brave where, Baba Yaga isn't really, she's not outright nice to her, nor is she outright evil to her, but she just kind of makes Vasilisa work for the magic 
that she's being given. And uh-huh. so people who hear this story that you just told of the princess frog, or the frog princess, they might think, like, wait, why was Bobby Yaga helping him out? Like, why was she doing this yeah. thing? And she's kind of like the fae in that she fairies, fairy folk, she <laughs> does what she feels like doing. Like She was just in a particularly good mood because she was caught right at the end of one of her favorite activities of lying on the stove with her chin on the shelf and her nose pointed <laughs> up at the ceiling. She's just she having a, a good, good day. A good yoga session was just done. She felt really relaxed. So she's like, you know what? I will help you out. Even though you yeah. were kind of rude to me and my house. Yeah. But so people might think like, is that in character for the Baba Yaga? And it's like, yeah, it is. Because yeah, that's what she, I thought. Because I was like, I'm used yeah. to, I don't actually know that much about the Baba Yaga, but I do feel like more of the stuff that I've heard is like the terrifying, going to mess you up kind of character, not help you out. Yeah. And so, yeah, she can go either way. It's just depending on her mood. And so, yeah, in this story, she actually is very helpful to Ivan, like, on his quest. And the big bad in this story is Cachet the Deathless. Yeah, he's the big bad. And Baba Yaga is just a helpful woman in the woods. She's like, I'll, help, you, I'll help you kill him. I'm like, can you imagine that that's the first story that you hear about, like, the Baba Yaga? And then somebody's like, I'm terrified of that woman. And they're like, why? She's so helpful. (laughs) She's just there to help a fella out. Like, no, she is not. There were really interesting, again, parallels to the story that you told. And in ways that were, like, not specific details. Okay, so there were specific details. Like, she's taking off her skin, but instead of her being a swan, it's the frog skin. Yeah. Which I thought was fun and interesting. Because it's also like, you know, if you had to be married to a swan, it still is not ideal. But at least a swan is like, you wouldn't necessarily be ashamed to like take out in public and be like, oh, isn't my wife so beautiful? Whereas like a frog, you're like, this is my dumb old frog. What you're bringing up is actually really fascinating. That, because kind of what you're saying without saying it is that like, there are some animals that are attractive. (laughs) And some animals that are, like, unattractive. Yeah. And that in itself is just, like, a very interesting thing to think about and, like, explore. And it's funny that, like, we do find some animals more, like, attractive. Not necessarily in a sexual way. Nobody get weird. Right. And we feel, like, more love towards them. What's interesting about a frog is, like, a choice, though, is that frogs have always had this kind of liminal space, weird, yeah, like being in two places at the same time because they're amphibians. Surprise, this is a science show. Um, <laughs> they live half of their or more than half of their life underwater, the swimming, water. living like fish, and then they come up like onto land. And so they've always had this like, kind of weirdness about them that like makes people uneasy. Yeah. There's really something interesting too, that maybe I'm just making this up, but it's like the fact that like you look at a tadpole and it turns into a frog and you're like, that does not make sense. This thing was a fish and now it's a frog to then think like, Oh, like, like with Pokemon, that's just the second evolution. Like the next evolution is to a beautiful princess. Like there's something about like that transformative nature of the frog and how it does that that you could easily see. And maybe I'm just seeing it with a, you know, weird lens 
in a world where Pokemon exists, but, um, you know, like, <laughs> no, but it is like, if you're putting yourself in their place of saying like, they don't know why they're seeing this pond full of all these like little fish and then they grow legs and come out. It's like magic. Yeah. It's like, so why couldn't it just shed its skin and be something else? I mean, yeah. obviously I don't think anyone thought that it was actually going to be a princess, but it's like the idea of it changing into something else is not so foreign like the same with like a caterpillar into a butterfly or whatever yeah another thing that i thought was kind of interesting relating the two stories together was the swans in the lake the swan lake of it all (laughs) yeah because it was it was present here and it was like they were swimming in the lake but it didn't really have anything to do with anything besides you know just vasalisa showing how impressive and awesome she was but it's like it's too specific to be a coincidence almost, you know, that it's like the same story type. And it also happens to have swans coming and swimming in the lake and kind of like magical circumstances. Yeah, it is. It is like this almost image that is being passed like around, even if it's not being said like explicitly, like it's just in the mind. And so it gets like put in. Almost. Yeah. It's like a vestigial thing. It's like, we don't know why we talk about this detail and where it comes from, but it's just, that's the way I heard it. So it just stays in there, even though it doesn't serve the purpose that it did before. And there is the element, too, of, like, being helped along the way by animals or people or whatever. It is interesting that it has that that element, because we haven't really discussed that yet, of, like, the animal helpers Uh that come and if you are kind to an animal, then it always is going to, like, help you back. Like, at a later point, like, in the story. Because there always seems to be this, like, understanding that doing pro-social things inside of the story helps you. Yeah. And it's interesting that that shows up in so many stories. Because it is, every time, like, a story is being told, it reinforces this idea that, like, we all need to be kind to each other and help each other. And like, if you're kind to somebody else, like they'll help you. Yeah. And it is really interesting too. Like in this situation, there are these animals that like, none of these animals would really help you. And he was hunting them like for food. Yeah. You know what I mean? In a time, in a time, like nowadays it's like, where does my food come from? Like even meat, it's like, Oh, I buy it from the supermarket. I'm like so detached from it. But in a place where it's like seeing an animal out in the wild is directly like, Oh, there's my lunch or there's my dinner. It's interesting that they have this whole thing of like being kind to animals and how that's really common, like across cultures and across time. You know, it's like, you just know, like you gotta be, you don't, you're not, a, you don't just needlessly kill animals or hurt animals or else you're a huge jerk. There's even a, like a Japanese story about like, uh, it has to do with like Buddhism too, but there's a man who like, he was a horrible person, but the only nice thing he ever did in his whole life was, like, spare a spider. He was going to squish it, but he decided to let it live instead. And so he goes to hell and is, like, being tortured in hell until that spider that he saved, like, shh, comes down and, like, rescues him. Because that one kind thing that he did was enough to rescue him from, like, the depths of hell. It's like sparing an animal coming back to help you. It's like, And those cultures are so different. And the timing, I'm sure, is a lot different, too. It's just, like, it's... Interesting how often that pops up, again, cross-culturally and across time. Yeah, the, these just like little animal helpers always pop up. And they make adorable sidekicks in Disney movies, so it's just perfect. So I wanted to read another quote. Going back to talking about like animal brides, there's usually two types of animal brides. 
either, and we, we talked about both of them today. So the first type of animal bride is one where they are kind of a creature of seduction. We think about like mermaids, selkies. Selkies are uh, women wearing like seal fur. I think it is hmm. that then like turn when they take off like the, that they turn into like a very like sexy woman, but the animal that they're in before is kind of seen as like seductive. Yeah. And so you, you, there's kind of the seeing the animal in the story and then it turning out to be like a gorgeous, like woman and then being like, Oh my gosh, a gorgeous woman. As opposed to like another type that's very much like, ew, this is a gross frog, disgusting. And then they're like, oh, you have to marry it. Like, oh, you're stuck with it. Um, So there's those kind of like two different types of stories. And I have another quote by Maria Tatar that says... They form a sharp contrast with another set. So the first set that I talked about that's like attractive. This forms a sharp contrast with another set of animal brides, the many toads, birds, fish, monkeys, mice, tortoises, and dogs that seek men who can break the magic spell binding them to an animal state. Frequently, these creatures excel at domesticity, spontaneously and effortlessly carrying out prodigious tasks that demonstrate their clear superiority to the human competition. And that's like exactly what we saw in the story that you told where he, she needs a magic spell broken. She fate like has an arrow land in front of her and she's like, Oh good. I can have this man break this spell. And she's amazing at, like, excelling in, like, the domestic sphere first. Yeah. But I'm like, it's so interesting to me because, like, he wasn't impressed by that. It's not like the story was that he was like, oh, you were really, really good at doing all these, like, wonderful things. And you were helping me out. And you didn't embarrass me in front of my family. And, you know, maybe our relationship can work out. (laughs) Yeah. And the father was like... The father was like, she's, this is the best wife of them all. She does all the greatest stuff. Yeah. But the prince was like, ugh, garbage. Yeah. And it wasn't until he saw like, oh, wait, she's hot. It is really interesting. And it's something that I was thinking about because my wife uh, read this book called Sex with Kings, which sounds fascinating. But it's basically about like, um, you know, the sex lives of kings. But how. That's a very interesting book <laughs> she's reading. She read it a while ago. <laughs> but. She would tell me about it. And it was interesting because, especially among royalty, which this story is a tale of royalty. It's like the marriages and stuff weren't done for love. They were like contracts between families. And so you'd be marrying people that you did not want to marry. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, but then, you know, in the book that she was reading, it talks about how like they would always have like, you know, their loves, lovers and stuff on the side. And that was like kind of expected because everyone knew that the marriage that they were getting into was only for, you know, political reasons and all that stuff. But in this story, it's just kind of interesting. It's like dealing with that. It's like marrying someone that you don't want to marry, that you think is gross, that you hate. And then them demonstrating like their worth in what that culture would think was important, which is like the domestic chores and all that stuff. And then what the, the, you know, horny young man would be interested in. And that's the fact that she was like super gorgeous in reality. Yeah. 
It's just and it, interesting. Yeah. And it is nice that, like, it does show in the second half of, like, the, um, in the second half of the story that he was willing to do a lot of, like, hard work. Yeah. To get her back. And he was kind to the animals. So I guess we shouldn't rag on him too hard. But Vasilisa could do so much better. She could do so much better. But that's none of my business. Frog sipping on tea meme here. Very (laughs) apropos. One thing that we always are trying to kind of make obvious and like bring to light in the podcast is how these stories go throughout cultures, how they travel through time and like how they do that. And I'm glad that we're actually taking more time to kind of go through these tale types of like animal brides and animal grooms and kind of like see where they came from, what other areas of the world they can be found and why they were so applicable. And I think one of the reasons why this story kind of travels is because these are stories about marriage. They're stories about couple relationships and couple relationships happen all over the world. And so the stories often are reflecting what marriages are like, what romantic relationships are like in the cultures that are like telling these stories. And even today, people are still playing around with these types of stories uh, to explore relationships between people and the fears and anxieties like involved with those romantic relationships or hopefully to be romantic relationships once the arranged part of it has time to grow into a love relationship. So I'm really excited to keep exploring this area of folk tales with you. Yeah, me too. It's been really fun seeing the process so far and starting to see the elements that you can see easily transforming into the story of Beauty and the Beast as we know it now. So I just look forward to more of that and seeing how that story came to be and discussing that story more knowledgeably when we get there. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. This episode contains additional music from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech Music. Check him out at Incompetech.com. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer... If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. Someday we might retell Hans my Hedgehog. I don't know why, but for some reason that story, like, it grosses me out, and I haven't figured out, like, What about it grosses me out? Because there's lots of animal groom stories that don't gross me out. So I don't know why Hans my Hedgehog grosses me out. That's something for me to work on in therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, those were stories. I'm glad we told them. Thank you for coming. Goodbye.